1: That's Nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's kni
2: Impact of influence. The Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. Welcome. So grateful you're joining us again. The Alec Murdoch trial came to an end, a story, of course, that you were with us on this ride from, from June of 2021, when Maggie Murdoch and Paul Murdoch were murdered. Alec Murdoch has been found guilty of those crimes. I am Matt Harris, and in case you don't know it, you're Seton Tucker. (laughs) We're back in uh, Dwayne's studio. It's been a little bit, because we've been on the road and seen attending many more days of the trial than i did uh part of that was a darn covid but part of it was it was great to have you down there because you made nice contacts and friendly people i mean my goodness
3: oh it's the first time i've ever attended a hearing like this and it was almost it it was a great camaraderie amongst all of the journalists very friendly and they took Anubian, and again it was really interesting and A little Felt a little bit out of my league at times because I have the Good Morning America people sitting next to me. They were super cool. And then the Dateline people. And again, it was a -a once-in-a-lifetime experience for me just to be able to be amongst this group.
2: Yeah, it was crazy because some of the little get-togethers we'd be at, we're like, here come the podcast people and all these (laughs) high-powered attorneys and Wall Street Journal writers and all this. And we're like, we do a podcast. Um, Imposter cool. syndrome, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it was it was um, really just amazing to be around all those people and 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 talk to them and pick their brains. And everybody was just super cool. Court TV cool to me as well with Chanley and Vinny,
3: and also my girl Gigi from she does oh, yeah. all the live commentating from Long Crime. And Anjanette, they are amazing as well.
2: Yep, Anjanette was—they uh, both were fantastic. Got to s- sit with them as part of the trial too. So uh, we, as you know, and you may have heard this, but we haven't been on to tell you yet about Judge Newman and the sentencing, which took place the morning after the guilty verdict. So it was that evening on on Thursday evening, and then Friday morning at nine thirty. Judge Clifton Newman handed down the statement. Let's start with Alec Murdoch's opening statement. Good morning, Your Honor. I'm innocent. I would never hurt my wife, Maggie, and I would never hurt my son, Paul.
4: Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you.
3: And we should note that he was not in his civilian clothes. He was in a prison jumpsuit. And eleven of the twelve jurors showed up for the sentencing portion.
2: It was kind of surprising. They yeah. done their duty, they had a day off, you know, after all that time.
3: I think they and some of the we'll talk about it later. I guess they wanted to see it through.
2: Right. Well, and this, this Judge Newman sentencing took a while.
3: It it did. Um, and we've actually received a couple of comments about his statement of I didn't hurt Mags and Paw Paw. I, I don't know if that's exactly what he said, but he, I know he said pawpaw, that he didn't say I didn't kill them. We had a couple of listeners reach out to us about that, that they found the wording odd.
2: Neither side had people make statements before the judge because I, I said it when I was doing one of the shows that there's nothing, there's no upside for Buster standing in front of the court or his family members. Because he's going to be in there the rest of his life. Usually you do it as a, a you know, victim's type thing to say why Alec shouldn't be spending all that time or why he should. And really all that does is make you more in a spotlight.
3: Well, and sometimes I do feel that victims want to be heard and they have the right to be heard at this sentencing phase.
2: But right. But the, as I'm saying, though, this particular case, yeah. what's the upside for... They're not trying to talk into a longer sentence. They're not going to talk into a shorter sentence. All they're going to do is get up there and be visible in front of people. So uh, let's move to some of the statements by uh, Judge Newman. took about, I guess, 20 minutes or so. And this is a part of his speech, if you will.
5: It's also particularly troubling, uh, Mr. Murdoch, because... As a member of the legal community, and a well-known member of the legal community, uh, you've practiced law before me, and we've seen each other at various occasions throughout the years. And it was especially heartbreaking for me to see you um, go on, go in the media from being a a grieving father who lost a wife and a son to being the person indicted and convicted of killing them. And you've engaged in such duplicitous conduct uh, here in the courtroom, here on the witness stand, and as established by the testimony, throughout the time leading from the time of the indictment and prior to the indictment throughout the trial to this moment in time, uh, certainly you uh, have no obligation to say anything other than saying I'm not guilty. Hmm.
3: First, I want to say it was so great to hear from Judge Newman. Throughout this trial, he's been such a calming force. He, I, I've seen him many times during lunch break, walking around the block. And in the courtroom, he has these stand breaks, which I think many of us want to incorporate into our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it was interesting that he, we now have confirmation that he knew Alec.
2: Mm-hmm. The fact that they, you know, we assumed they knew each other, or at least ran into each other, uh, and, and you've We both agree that Judge Newman was very calm throughout this thing, even when the attorneys might have been arguing amongst each other. And uh, I want to play a clip where Judge Newman, he says, I understand why the death penalty was on the table. But he also mentions how weird it is based on the Murdoch family past that this is being tried in this courtroom and the death penalty not
5: on the table. But as I sit here in this courtroom and look around the many um, portraits of judges and other court officials and reflect on the fact that over the past century, your family, including you, have been prosecuting people here in this courtroom and many have received the death penalty, probably for lesser conduct.
2: So, I found that interesting because if you think about it, even just this part, when in the history of the U.S. or world has been a a guy in the same courtroom being charged with murder where his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather prosecuted people for
5: murder?
3: Well, another thing that Judge Newman said that stuck out in my mind was talking about this tangled web of lies. Let's listen to this clip.
5: Remind me of the expression you uh, gave on the witness stand. Was it tangled? Tangled web, we weave. Uh, uh, Oh, what tangled web, we weave. What did you mean by that? meant when I
2: lied, I continued to lie.
5: And the question is, when will it end? When Mm. will it end?
2: The lies were his life for the last 20 years.
3: And it was very clear that the jury considered him a liar.
2: Yes, and we'll get to some of the jury, uh, the jurors, and their comments after they were allowed to speak to the press. Uh, Another quick clip from uh, Judge Newman talking about Alec and looking his wife and son in the eyes.
5: And I know you have to see Paul and Maggie during the night times when you're attempting to go to sleep. I'm sure they come and visit you. I'm sure. All day and every night. I'm sure. And they will continue to do so. And, And reflect on the last time they looked you in the eyes. As you looked the jury in the eyes.
3: I just found this to be really sad and creepy that Judge Newman brings. Their, they're coming to Alec in their sleep, and he says, yes, they are. And mm-hmm. my mother-in-law called me this morning, and that was the first the first thing that she brought up that Judge Newman said.
2: And the fact that since he's been convicted of the murder, the murderer, which would be him since convicted, was looking both of them in the eyes when they were shot. They were shot while they were facing the shooter, of course, Alec Murdoch. Another Newman moment was when Alec again says that he's innocent, and then Newman follows it up with an interesting take. I'll tell you again, I respect this court, but I'm innocent. I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my wife Maggie, and I would never, under any circumstances, hurt my son Paul Well,
5: And it might not have been you. It might have been... Uh... The monster you become when you uh, take 15, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 opioid pills. Maybe you become another person. Um, I've seen that before. The the, the person standing before me was not the person who committed the crime, though it's the same individual. Um, We'll leave that at that
2: hmm and a final quote i'll just read to you the depravity the callousness the selfishness of these crimes are stunning the lack of remorse and the effortless way in which he is including here sitting right over there in this witness stand your honor a man like that a man like this man should never be allowed to be among free law abiding citizens that quote was from creighton Waters.
3: Yeah, Creighton Waters has gone viral. He's on Twitter now, and people have followed him in masses.
2: And he's playing a guitar. He's a guitar guy. He's in a band. And uh, so he has this fame that came from this. Judge Newman, we've seen pictures of him now at the Gamecocks women's basketball game.
3: Yes, you can find that on our Facebook page, which is Murdoch Podcast, if you want to check that out.
2: Many people I've seen have selfies with him now all over social media. Uh, he's became uh, a celebrity and uh, Creighton Waters as well. We want to go to the defense team, Dick Harpootlian's press conference with the media. And out of the gate, what do you got here, Seaton?
3: Well, Ellick's attorneys have gone on record saying that they are going to file an appeal in 10 days and are going to continue to represent him. The first thing they talk about in this press conference is SLED's handling of the investigation.
4: I don't disagree with, I mean, if I'd been prosecuting this case, I probably wouldn't have brought it, but um, based on, you know, what we heard was presented to the Carlton County Grand Jury by uh, Detective um, Owen that Jim crossed, blood spatter that didn't exist, uh, testimony about guns that was wrong. I mean, I can go through the litany with you. Uh, Going back to his question, I think uh, Swed needs to, uh, do some self-examination on the forensic processing. They did not. I mean, one of the things we complained about was that Maggie's phone would have had all her GPS data on it if they processed it within five days. Um, and they, they, because they didn't, the GPS data got overridden. I mean, it was just one, which would have been helpful to Alec, It's fingerprints, footprints, and all kinds of forensic things that weren't done.
2: And- Because those things weren't done doesn't necessarily mean that Alec is not guilty, but I think it is something that SLED should examine so they don't have these questions come up in another investigation down the road.
3: I think that they may carry Faraday bags from this point forward. Um, They may change up a few things. Next, let's listen to a clip that talks about their reason that they are filing an appeal.
6: But, you yep. know, it was <clears throat> the admission of all the financial crime evidence, uh, and, and that was offered up, you know, as evidence of motive, that because he was confronted about uh, one financial transaction involving attorney's fees by the uh, chief accountant of the law firm, that op- and that was being offered as motive for why he would go home and kill his wife and son, which we thought was illogical and ludicrous. and and. Um, and there really was no evidence linking one to the other, and we did not think it should come in the um, not only did that come in, but every other uh, financial misdeed that they could bring in over the last ten or fifteen years was allowed in and, and and we think that we strongly objected we respect the judge's decision but but we believe that that was erroneous decision and and we we believe that the judge <coughs> was somewhat misled because. At the conclusion of the case, when Mr. Metters is up on his um, rebuttal argument in front of the jury, he says to the jury, forget about all that motive evidence, we don't have to prove motive, we just have to prove malice. Which is right, but why did they go to all the effort to prove motive when at the end they say, you don't have to believe us on our motive theory, but by then they had cast Alec as a despicable human being and that was the reason they offered it in the first place, and we we think the appellate courts will take a strong look at that. We feel um like that is a very solid ground for an appeal, and we're going to pursue that
2: of course, that was uh Jim Griffin uh, commenting there
3: yeah i i I don't know if this is just Loring. I would like to talk to John Snyder about this. you know, I've seen a lot of commentary on all the law shows about the financial crimes and the 403B stuff. So who knows?
2: I've heard of a few attorneys, probably four or five attorneys while I was down there saying they thought it was a strong case for an appeal. Not necessarily win the appeal, but it's a strong case to be heard based on putting all those financial crimes in. We shall see. Next, you have another clip from the defense.
3: One of the questions that was asked to the defense team at this press conference was about el. Taking the stand and why they felt it necessary. Let's listen.
4: Um, as a result, our options were limited. Should he take the stand? Well, you know, we debated that. He always wanted to take the stand, but once that information was in, I mean, if he had to take the stand to explain the kennel video, the lie, if you will, um, he had to. But he had no credit. His credibility had been stripped away by um, by the uh, the financial. Uh,
2: Mm. taking the stand thing it was really a tough call i'm sure and the jurors when they now have been speaking to media and we'll get to a little bit of that shortly but they kind of think that was his undoing
3: oh they all said it was a bad idea
2: snotty but you know who knows what they it's hard to say what they would have thought without hearing him it might have just been the same but this just convinced them and put a nail in the old coffin as they say what do you got next
3: I want to talk about the media attention that this story has received, and let's hear what the defense team says about the media coverage.
6: Alec was not optimistic that, with with all of the um, scrutiny and press, and and all of his bad acts being out in the public, in the world, you know, uh, media domain, that he could get, you know, a, a jury to put out all the noise and and just focus on the murder. And so coming in he was somewhat pessimistic, he became optimistic as we got through the process, but but I got to tell you and all you reporters, you know, you know the whole story, I'm sure. And if you're sitting on that jury, they heard everything that would be in an HBO documentary a Netflix documentary about the Murdoch family dynasty downfall, except the Susan, um, the Steven Smith matter. I mean, so we were hoping to get a jury to put all, you know, that, that could ignore the noise, focus on the murder, and we ended up trying a case that, that they could have watched on Netflix.
2: Hmm. If the jury had been paying attention to media, and they certainly would have went in with a, of an opinion of Alec Murdoch and the Murdoch family. Doesn't mean they couldn't remove themselves and try to be Uh, neutral on it, but it would be impossible to have any kind of real positive vibe about Alec Murdoch going into that trial if you had been following everything.
3: Yeah, it was. And the Netflix documentary came out in the middle of this trial and they're not supposed to watch media and not saying they did.
2: Well, a lot of those things were out long before the trial was chosen, different documentaries.
3: Jim Griffin was in the HBO documentary.
2: As a matter of fact, we are going to have a bonus episode coming up soon. We talked to the producers of the HBO documentary, kind of a behind the scenes thing and what their take was on it. And we recorded that before the trial even began.
3: And Brooke Bronson was actually at the restaurant with us when we were waiting on the verdict to come in.
2: And Brooke is? With HBO. She's a producer. Now we have another soundbite for you from the defense press conference.
3: We've had a lot of questions about whether the family is standing by Alec, and the defense team speaks to this in this next clip.
6: You know, I, I, I can't speak to Buster's feelings. I can tell you this. There was a lot of effort by the state to convince the family that Alec is the murderer. The family came to trial every day for six weeks expecting to hear proof positive that he killed Maggie and Paul, something that they had not heard before. After six weeks of trial, they came away more convinced that he did not do this. And they steadfastly in his camp and support him. And that's, that's, that's where they stand. Next clip.
3: Well, let's hear what De Carpoolean has to say about finding the real killer.
4: <laughs> not our job to find the real killer. If they had taken fingerprints, if they'd gotten footprints, if they hadn't destroyed, had, if they'd preserved Maggie's phone with her GPS, um, if they had not, I mean, they misrepresented to the grand jury that they had a shirt with his blood on it, when they, and if they, if, if, you know, if Owen had opened his email, he says he didn't get, would have told him a year before that was, there was no human blood on that t-shirt. I mean, it was a, a comedy of errors in terms of forensics on this. So do I have faith that they would find the real killer? No.
2: You know, he's absolutely correct. In a court of law, you do not need to prove there was another killer if you're the one on trial, standing trial for the, the murder or whatever the crime is. But in the court of public opinion, right, you would think, and maybe they did this, they are under no obligation I know through legal means, to produce the, the Sperry shoes or the blue shirt that he was wearing or the khakis or whatnot or, um, you know, go dig up the property to find out if there's any guns on the, his mom's house. You just think, though, you might call around to every place where he left clothes. Does anybody have those Sperry shoes? Can we hunt down those Sperry shoes? Can we hunt down this shirt? I get it. Legally, no obligation. But it's something you you might want to try.
3: Well, now the obligation is on them. So if they want to retest some of these things, they want to produce this clothing, or they want to... I mean, I still wonder about this hair in Maggie's hand. Well, there's still questions. There's still questions. But I think, doesn't the burden shift to the person who has now been convicted to trying to prove their innocence?
2: Well, it's the only person under any obligation because the case is done. So that's not going to investigate any further. The hair in Maggie's hand is still a thing that is amazed that no one is talking about, really. I know, yeah. The DNA under her fingernails, I'm getting that could be a a gazillion different people. So that one's hard to figure.
3: Well, and there were only three alleles on that. So I don't know that, I think they were able to rule people out, but I don't know how much that is available for testing.
2: Right, or could help. Uh, so now the uh, the jurors are able to speak, and they've been out. Craig Moyer might have been the first one I believe to to end up on uh, ABC News, and I was the one of the most interesting things that he said to me was the first poll nine guilty votes.
5: Mm-hmm.
2: I think he said nine guilty two not guilty, and one undecided.
3: Yes, that's what I heard as well.
2: But then they flipped them all in under three hours.
3: Well, they said they actually only deliberated 45 minutes.
2: Oh, that's right. Yes, yes. I mean, it didn't come back for three hours. Right, so they they flipped those three. Well, flipped two and got one to go on the other side. That is odd to me.
3: I thought it would have taken a little bit longer, especially with... The self, Maggie's cell phone data, you know, we saw those flipping back and forth. I just, I thought it might take them a little bit more time, especially with these two, just to look back through some of the stuff. We have six weeks worth of testimony.
2: Yes. Obviously, they weren't asking to see a lot of things.
3: Yeah, I think that they kind of, for the most part, went in with their minds made up.
2: Moyer said, a good liar, but not good enough. All he did was blow snot, Moyer said, no tears. I saw his eyes. I was this close to him, so it was all about him not buying this. Because it was very snotty.
3: He was Alex very was snotty. Very
2: snotty, and the other juror who's uh, made a couple of appearances is uh, James. Yes, and he did one uh, solo for Law and Crime Network.
3: Yeah, he was a 22 year old whose brother was actually a witness. Colton County Sheriff's Officer who was a witness during this hearing.
2: I uh, Actually on the stand.
3: Was on the stand.
2: That seems, but I guess everybody had to be aware of it, right?
3: When I sat through the jury selection, they asked you if you, they read this really long list of 250 potential witnesses. I think we heard from 70-something witnesses during the course of the trial. Mm-hmm. And you had to say if you had any connections and then you had to say what they were and they did call certain jurors back into the chambers to kind of question them but obviously this juror he revealed his connection and both sides were okay with it okay i mean could that be ineffective assistance of counsel i don't know i mean would you not believe what your brother said
2: right and also not just what his brother said but the fact that a lot of the defense was about poor law enforcement and if you've got a family member who's in law enforcement you would think you'd be a little shaded to one side.
3: You would think. Um, this juror said he was not really that familiar with the case going in.
2: That's that's crazy. What is that not that familiar? I guess people are busy, I guess. But in that small area, you would think most people would be pretty darn aware of the case. The people that were on the Today Show, the three jurors, Gwen and James, and there was one other one. Uh, all said that his testimony cooked him they didn't buy his emotions they didn't believe he was really crying and they thought because he was a lawyer maybe he knew how to work it that was the general vibe
3: well that was a lot of the testimony that came forward from his own law partners that he knew how to work the room and so they probably heard that and thought yeah how how can we trust him and that's that's valid Uh, You know, another thing I thought was interesting that they said was, you know, there's been so much talk about them not being able to take notes, that they were able to take notes when they went on breaks. So they had pads where they could write down questions that they had. So James said that is, you know, why we were able to come to such a fast conclusion.
2: Uh, I don't don't know if I told this story on here or not, but my brother was named a foreman of a jury in South Carolina a long time ago. 20 some years ago and the judge said no notes and he gave a reason why no notes. His reason was the judge said to to him and his fellow jurors, if someone takes notes, that will be the fact. And if other people didn't take a note on that particular thing, instead of asking for the exhibit or asking for this or that, they'll just believe whatever note that person has and that person might be wrong. But now Mm -hmm. all of a sudden that person is the person who has all the facts. Never thought of it. That way, before, but this is eight weeks. It's hard to believe you. Know, but he said questions, and that'd be one thing.
3: Yeah, I mean, if you if you said I want to go back and look at the cell phone records or the the yeah. steps or those sort of things, you could write back. Let me look at this. You know, write down the exhibit number. Let me look at this exhibit again.
2: Right and well, and I, I still think that timeline. And and maybe I'm insane. And people yell at me again as they like to. I, it just was never clear from either side what they thought exactly happened when. To me, it wasn't clear. Like, for instance... It
3: was still unclear. Right? Are you agree with me? Yes.
2: Like, even at the end. Okay, the fir- at the end is the first time we hear, as far as I know, and it might have been... At least if it happened, it wasn't made in a big deal. Griffin mentions that Maggie was taking the steps instead of this whole idea that the killer was walking around the steps and that maybe the murders didn't happen until way later. They just put their phones down just because the phone stop doesn't mean they're dead. But that's the first time I've heard I think I heard that argument, right?
3: I think it was brought up, but again, it but was briefly. it was not it was not presented in a concise way that I think I personally understood.
2: And also the the fact that this this and I I got heat on this and I'll get into it in a second, that the <laughs> that the phone was tossed and it didn't register anything, that came up later. I swear at the beginning the whole idea it was tossed when all that stuff was happening when it was tumbling in orientation that was what they said was when it was tossed. You know, it changed.
3: I've thought about this all weekend and the other thing I'm like what what did the throwing of the phone accomplish for either side?
2: Yes. It ended. up see they were making it a major deal at the beginning but it seems like everybody shifted through the course of it. Because at one point in the opening arguments it was the defense saying we it you know, he would have had to have been a Houdini. He couldn't do both at the same time. Well, that kind of went away. I mean, they kind of. I mean, they played with it a lot, but it wasn't a big thing in the closing argument. In the closing argument, he's not saying, "Look, it's impossible." Nine oh six, it was thrown. Da, 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 da. That that was not mentioned yeah. at least. That, so, yeah, I I I I think to me it was kind of like they both were hedging their bets a little bit on when the phone was thrown, exactly the time. Of, I mean, they stuck with, the prosecution stuck with when they were probably killed, but the phone thrown was different.
3: But it all boiled down to that kennel video.
2: All boiled, down.
3: And all the Durs who have since spoken out have all said that that is what they made their decision on. Yep. And I think Alec was not credible to them, whether it's because of these financial crimes or not. I don't know the answer to that question, but they didn't believe him when he gave his explanation of why he was down there and why he lied about it. And I think another one of the jurors, I'm not sure which one, brought up the fact that Rogan Gibson had said he thought he heard Alex's voice on the phone call. Mm-hmm. Remember first he yep. Rogan was talking to Paul, right. then he tried to do a FaceTime and that didn't work. Right. So then there's this video that was never sent The fact that Alec initially lied about that being in the background when Rogan was talking to Paul further diminished his credibility.
2: And that happened in one of, they didn't really play a lot on it, the prosecution, but in one of the interviews with Alec, it's when he's in the uh, police station, he says, yeah, Rogan told me about my voice being in the background, but they kind of just moved on from that. And then that makes you wonder why he was called Rogan all those times, right? Mm-hmm. Right right after the murders. Um so yeah, it was that lie. I mean, it was all the lie. I mean It and, was the uh, lie. And the lie and then the time frame they would have had to have been murdered was so close that
3: right. no coming back. Right. And I think Creighton Water's argument to use common sense obviously was effective with them. I still though in my mind don't feel like I fully understand what happened that night and it's not sitting well with me. Do you?
2: Yeah. No, no, I, I and then and that's not to say we're saying he didn't do it the 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 visual of trying to get in our brains that he he blew them away and does not and and I get there's could be plenty of reasons but he also managed to do two guns like was that to throw people off or was that just convenient because maybe he shot Paul and then Maggie heard it. And he just grabbed a gun that was there. So, like the step by step of what happened is difficult, right? Mm -hmm. So, and is he all day? He's acting like he's going out and having fun with them and laughing and having dinner, and and then all of a sudden, and does he pre-plan it because of the you know the uh, the AR was missing for a while? It appeared to be missing for a while. So, had had he hidden that away? To wait to use at another time. There's just still so a lot of questions. Exactly or did how it played he
3: snapped because he was using 60 opioid tablets. Yeah,
2: time. and maybe Paul says, "I'm done with this crap." You know, who knows? But I'm just saying, yeah. To visualize the whole thing that turned this into violence and how many steps he did, and did he, or did he take the guns? They say they imply he took them uh, to his mom's house and hit them away somewhere in there. But they'd still come up at some point.
3: Yeah, I I just think that there are still a lot of unanswered questions that, unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to know.
2: You know what? Uh, someone said that they believe that he put the guns in his dad's casket.
3: Oh, I got. I've seen that. that. I've seen that rumor for a long time, and I've also gotten questions about that. That seems a little far fetched to me. me I'm too. not buying that one.
2: And me too, because it like no one would have to notice it, and why? There's plenty of places he could get rid of. In that area, plenty of places you can get rid of a couple of guns, and no one would notice. I'm not sure if all the property, if every inch of every property, because there's a lot of acres, has been searched for that gun, and all the waterways around there. Yeah. You don't have to now. Maybe
3: maybe at some maybe someday the guns will be found.
2: But I guess most murders you don't have in a. There's always questions after most murders, unless there's an eyewitness or a confession. So I guess that's not unusual. Um, We're always grateful that you hang out with us, and uh, we have a ton of emails. Maybe we'll get to another episode. Just whip through those. Uh, We also want to bring John Snyder on because there's questions for him as well, and uh, you can reach out to us still on Murdoch Podcast Facebook, MurdochPodcast.com, MattHarrisPodcast at gmail.com, and we will talk soon, friend.